Hey, awesome nerds, and welcome to another episode of D&D and TV, the weekly podcast where we rewatch or recap television shows we really enjoy and talk about how the themes, concept, and characters could be used in different role-playing games. I am your host, Jeremy. We are currently talking about the first season of that time I got reincarnated as a slime, and I am joined by my competent co-host, Caleb, who is currently listening to the podcast as we record the podcast. It's um, sort of like a time loop situation. Um, yeah. I am both or even some quantum um, part of it. I am both listening to the podcast and not listening to the podcast. Ooh, that's like Schrodinger's podcast. Exactly. Who knows if it's yeah. been posted yet? Whoa, just blew my mind. You know what, listener? We are doing this live just for you, so we are doing it all the time. This is constantly happening as you're listening to it. I'm very tired. <laughs> You and me both. Oh, we oh, like, wonderful! Like a late night, um, one tonight. Yeah, we are. Uh, so we'll we'll jump into it. We are talking about episode nineteen and twenty of uh, that time I got reincarnated as a slime. That time slime, uh, which is Charybdis and Yuki Kagasor. Oh God damn it! I knew I was going to mess this name up. Oh, Kagurazuka. Kagurazuka. Six years of Japanese coming back. It's all good. Yes. Um. And in these episodes, Rimuru fights Charybdis, except then he doesn't, and then he goes to the city and meets a guy. That's it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, it I don't even bother two, with these synopsis anymore. One, as you said. Yeah. yeah. The, these ones, there are two like, major parts that happen in each one, and um, Charybdis is the first one, and uh, Yuki is the next one along. Um, and what? Yuki does actually end up showing up later on um he yeah yuki feels character. like they're they're a more important character than just like a random oh you're also from from human land yeah not just another other worlder which i liked is, i thought that was cool yeah. and it's very interesting because this is one that is like straight up embracing the the home part of it like a lot of the other worlders that you hear about or that you know about all seem to be very well integrated into the world. Yeah. Whereas Yuki is just like, um, you know, I'm I'm doing my stuff, but the second someone gives me a manga, I'm just like, oh, thank God. <laughs> oh, I did. Oh, I did love that. He's just pooping out manga to for this kid. Yep. And yeah. oh, the the amount of meta about that. Like that one yeah. series, is it still going? It's like, yes, no, yes, no. And then it's like, then they just have Blander of the Lustrous. Like they have the manga there. Like, yeah, I, I have, I'm fascinated because I, I mean, I don't know much about a lot of manga, but I do know that Kadansha that publishes that time I got reincarnated as a slime also publishes Land of the Lustrous. And is this just like oh, yeah, very right. unsubtle promotions? Oh, 100%. 100%. Okay. Which is actually in itself okay. kind of really bloody funny. Yeah. But I was on board with it because that sort of meta commentary and like throw like shout outs and things, that's such a perfect RPG thing. Like, that's exactly yeah. why I do this podcast. It's like you pick out the parts from shows you really like and you put them in your game. And people who notice them are like, hey, look, I've got a little joke that I, I recognize. Yeah. Um, this is honestly one of those things that um, is 
great for one of those isekai other world campaigns um especially mm -hmm. if you're going like real life into the world like you know what parts are going to affect it especially if there are other people around then you can start doing like more meta um motivations for people um yeah you know um i think i've talked on this podcast before about my goblin who wanted to get to you know the real world like the pre-isekai world um and is like okay. learning all this stuff about like combustion engines and stuff like that while being an artificer um it sounds cool so yeah so that that is a really great isekai trope yeah, yeah, and I, I like that blending and crossover of it. It's interesting because in fiction, I generally strongly dislike that element of um, there being like our world is just another one of these worlds, and your and the fictional one is out there somewhere. It's like that's that's when we start getting Superboy Prime punching the walls of reality and changing stuff, and it it's annoying a little. I'll get onto Superboy Prime another day. We're not going to talk about him now. Uh, <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm, I'm but, hearing about punching the walls of reality. I'm in. <laughs> I'm all hey, All right, all right. Very quickly. Superboy Prime was a boy called Clark Kent who lived on our world. And his parents called him Clark Kent because they thought it was funny because Superman is also called Clark Kent. Ha, ha, ha. And then it turned out he actually had Superman's powers. Uh, and when oh, Crisis on Infinite much. Earths... Yeah, and when Crisis on Infinite Hearts happened back in the 80s, he was like kind of drawn into it as well, and it was a whole thing, and then they all got separated, and he was one of the few people that actually survived all the universes collapsing, and he was put in a little bubble, but he wanted to get out, so whenever he was angry, he would punch the wall, and that would change things in the regular DC universe. When they needed something retconned, Superboy punched a wall. Uh, so it gets a little bit kitsch there. Yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, how come that guy was dead? Yeah, nah, Superboy punched a wall, he's back. Yeah. Like, that's the sort of bad type of meta stuff when something like that um, sort of screws with the rules of the reality. Mm. If, if something contributes to the realm of the, like, the reality of the world, i.e., you know, guy gets reincarnated as a slime, um, was a, a major virgin before he, um, before he started, um, so, would of course have a whole bunch of manga knowledge in his head. So it's just like, Bleh. let's go. Yeah, because as we know, that tracks. All virgins read manga, which is why I suggested this to you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, oh my yeah, gosh! I feel like out. <laughs> I mean, doesn't everyone read manga? So it's like. Yeah, all versions read manga, so it's it's yep. anyway. Yep. All right, <laughs> that makes sense. I wasn't expecting to see that one coming. Um, <laughs> you've like completely thrown my train of thought with that. <laughs> all right, what what I wanted to talk about manga, I feel that not manga in particular, but meta as well. That when it takes you out of the experience and the story. In an RPG, mm -hmm. like if you're walking through a um, a fantasy world and you come across a, a short guy with like six foot tall warriors around him, and he declares as the emperor of this land, and he's got like his his one hand inside his chest, and he speaks with a French accent, 
It's like, okay, cool. You've just taken Napoleon and, and put him in. But if he then starts talking about Waterloo and he starts talking about, I'll get that General Wellington. And I'm like, okay, now you've got to taken it too far because now he's just Napoleon put into this world. He's not a version of it, which is, is funny and I recognize it. Yeah. I find the best way of discussing meta in terms of D&D um, and whether or not this affects it would be if I were to describe a war game or a tabletop game or a D20 dice to a creature like or, or, or to something would I um, would they recognize it? Oh. Napoleon probably would recognize a dice and recognize war games. It's, I it's mean, that I don't know if he'd recognize war games. He'd recognize, yeah, he would recognize war games. And the first D20 was from Egyptian time. So why would he not recognize a D20? Napoleon shot the nose of the Sphinx, supposedly. Exactly. Um, so, <laughs> I'm trying to throw you and, now. And, Oh yeah, oh you'll never throw me. You'll never throw okay. me. Okay, famous words. Um, but yeah, if if they if, if it is something that exists in the world that is then able to be acted upon by the result of a dice, then it can exist in that world. However, if someone starts talking about Waterloo, there is no way that you can roll a history check for Waterloo mm. in Faerun, for example. Mm. I'm sorry, but like that's not going to happen. Unless there's, you then create a town called Waterloo and like also make it part of that world, and then you can continue to have the jokes. But that's like an extra a level of it. I'm wondering. Then I often see the um the meme of like someone rolling like a 35 on perception or something or insight, and it's like <laughs> you suddenly realize you're standing on a table and every these are giants around you, and it's, you realize you're not life is just numbers on a piece of paper kind of thing. It's like, how do you feel about that level of meta entering into the game? Or the, the you know, they see, worship I, the god, the dungeon master. See, I almost got to this point with this character. So, they started stumbling upon, because they were someone that wasn't much, um, this goblin wasn't much of a institutionalized religion type goblin. Um, you know, had a few missionaries come into his village and was sort of, had sort of seen the nonsense that they've been spouting, but happened upon a church of the goddess of luck. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, upon realizing that, okay, let's say that according to these other party members, this place was a game to them and that they experienced this world through numbers and probability and stuff mm -hmm. like that therefore the building blocks of this universe must be things that represent numbers and probability i.e. luck dice variables that sort of stuff and so suddenly within the realm of this reality, like he realized, like he sort of realizes, well, in that case, I'm hearing from these extra plane of beings that the building blocks of the world 
are essentially luck. Therefore, I think I've probably found the one true religion. Here. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the, this is the one that I'm going to go for. After all the other ones came in being like, oh, our God's the most powerful, all that sort of stuff. No, no, no. I've heard from the extra plane of, be extra plane of beings. This is, this is it. This is, this is the one. Yeah. That kind of matches an Isekai world very well. That you have all these powers that follow, like rock is strong against flying creatures kind of, kind of attitude that these, um, that a lot of the creatures have, and you can name your attacks and absorb elements. And you've got a, a sage that tells like appraises everything and tells you their power levels that when you live in that world, yeah, you would start to be like, everything can be broken down into numbers and I can literally see how the world has been created. So that would be the, the normal reactions. Like, yeah, well, that's the God then that's the one true religion. Yeah. It's a very mechanical sort of world. Yeah. And that's what D and D in those sort of worlds are. I'm certain I've read a web comic where they, they have someone who's like that. And they're just like, I'm, I'm studying that this world is mechanically created. Oh no, it was it wasn't a um it wasn't a, a webcomic, it was a sketch on Morris's unofficial tabletop role playing podcast. And it was it was oh, pretty much okay. that. It was only like five minute sketch, but it was, hey, if we can establish that, you know, I have a certain number of hit points that I, I take before I am killed, then mm -hmm. uh yeah. they did it much better than me. Um yeah, okay. Meta. Interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. Um, when you want meta to work within your environment so yeah i.e if you're discussing with an other worlder um and trying to get them on side chances are that's when you can start bringing other world stuff into it because it works with the logic of that world what do you think about moving between worlds because that was kind of what yuki was saying as well that he was searching for a way back wasn't he i believe so yeah yeah, like because he's um, surprised that Rimuru's like, I don't want to go back. I want to stay here and keep ruling my nation. But he's like, as soon as I find a way back, like it's possible. I figured out that it is possible. That's why there's stories about demons and things in our world that other stuff has passed through beforehand. And of course, obviously, I'm here. But what do you reckon about that? Like, this is a, a very strong element in D and D lore that idea of planar travel, but that's not really like different realities. It's more just, you know, this is where the demons live. This is where the angels live. This is where the fire elementals live sort of aspect. This, it's starting to feel like a multiverse. Dare I, dare I say the word when you start to get into, well, this is the world where everything's a video game and this is a world where it's just us. So how do you feel about that in a game? Well, it does still have to work in the internal logic of the world. Um, you can't have a situation where you have established, okay, the layer of our engagement with this is on this level. Um, it's why the 35 perception that you were mentioning goes basically directly up to the dungeon, like the, the Dungeons and Dragons board. Mm. Because there has been no... Um, like the veil does not exist within that canon. Seeing beyond the veil is just that layer between us and the game. Now, because of that time that I got reincarnated as a slime, has established the 
layer of reality um, between, you know, the real-life Japanese world that, that um, Rimuru originally came from to then go through to, you know, the Kingdom of Ingracia or and, um, the Jura Tempest Alliance, that, ca- that is canonized within the world and so is seen as a plane. The problem is, is that the second that you do that in a game where that is not, not established, that's when you stop playing the game. Because in the end, you break that bound of reality. The characters have made their way outside of the game. It's, you know, you, you would have to basically wish for a Lego movie ending for your miniatures to start <laughs> jumping around well, and um, acting the mind. Of I don't. I don't mean specifically like taking them out of the game and putting them in our world. I'm thinking more like, let's say Rimuru jumps out of that world and goes into, say, the Neon Genesis world, like the Evangelion world, and it's still the same character. He has a different set of powers because it's a different sort of world. But that kind of jumping between fictional realities. Oh, and I mean, thinking of, of role-playing games, you start off playing D&D and then you're like, okay, and I've stepped through this portal and now I'm in the Shadowrun universe. And I kind of get the idea of it because, you know, there's still an elf there. It's just got this weird sort of magical typewriter that he's using to, to do things. And then they jump out of that world and they go into like the, I don't know, the Call of Cthulhu universe. Yeah, It's very interesting that you mentioned um, Superman or Superboy before because that's one of the key... Um, arguments that we have, which is um, who would win, Goku or Superman? Um, one Punch so Man. Like a, that's a mainstream. Yeah, One Punch Man is, is the answer. <laughs> one Punch uh, Man is always the answer. Exactly. Because that's the thing. In the end, um, there is a whole... The, the, um, sorry if I've seemed waffly on this, but like this is something I spent a lot of time talking I'm thinking about, because I don't have a life. Remember, I, remember, I read manga. <laughs> Um, so I believe that the medium is the message. It is very, very hard to take a character from Dungeons and Dragons, which is normally a high or low fantasy combat mechanic based game and then apply them to something like, let's say, um, Call of Cthulhu, where suddenly they are disempowered. So it's investigations um, and it's um, discoveries. Investigations. Exactly. And suddenly you've brought a character that's very, very good at fighting into a world that doesn't, isn't, like, doesn't reward fighting. And I'm not just talking in terms of the stories. I'm talking about mechanically. Suddenly it would be like you're holding a stick. And that's not because of the Eldritch Horrors around. It just means that you are now dealing with something that is operating on very, very different rules as to what you normally are. And you have to work within those rules. That's what Rimuru was finding with this world, in, like in terms of magicules and stuff like that, um, and magic being around. Um, it's, um, you know, you start getting down into the sheer laws of physics of this world. What does the medium say about the laws of physics? Um, so, for example, if you try to, uh, I, I will admit I haven't played Call of Cthulhu, but let's say that every time you try to investigation check, you suddenly find yourself going mad. You are going to basically, 
you will have created a character that will constantly investigate sitting in a world that actively um, uh, is hostile to that, um, to, to investigation. So, but they, the character has not changed. The character still has the same power that they used to. Well, I'm wondering if it, it's, if is are the powers important in that regard, or can it just be about the personality? Like, well, what what was it, Mikami? What was Rimuru's first name? Um, okay, his original uh, name, Murakami. I think it was. Mur, Mur, Murakami's the writer. I'm going to say Mikami. Anyway, pre Rimuru, uh, didn't have any powers, like until he came through a, into this world. So it's not about them, the powers directly transferring. It's about them discovering that they have something new when they go into the new world. But the personality remains the same. And that would, I think, would be more interesting that you would be discovering something new every single time. You're like, oh, what am I in this world? It'd be a slider sort of experience. Exactly. And, that, and that's when you get into like fish out of water stuff. That's, that's when you start being like, okay, what are the frame of reference? What are the frame of frames of reference this character has um and uh yeah going between different systems like let's go back to the whole goku versus superman stuff um superman is used to um like they both battle at certain points rather universe ending things yeah but um superman you know there is a difference between, like, he is existing in a medium that is very good at dialogue and big, splashy um, fights. <laughs> like, you are going to see a fight from Superman spread out over multiple volumes. It's true. It's true. Not counting um, Doomsday. Not counting Doomsday. Um, whereas for Goku, that's everywhere. It's his thing. That 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 is that that's his thing. Um but that is also down to the medium as well. Um so I kinda miss the days when Superman would just stand in front of bullets and that would be the end of it, right? And rather than having yeah, to punch people. people drop their gun. Yeah. Yeah. The times I'm talking about are like 1937, so, you know, let's... Yeah, yeah. so bullets were a lot weaker back then. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's very, very interesting when you start getting into meta stuff um, mm. because now you sort of have to examine, well, does this character's... Like you say, their personality could transfer. But how much of that personality is, I guess... Tied into what they can do and and their abilities and what how they interact with the world around them based on what they're able to do. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, speaking of things interacting with the world around them, I did notice something. Okay, this is where we're going to get into uh, Charybdis and yes. my many problems with Charybdis. But one thing I found interesting, and I liked the idea of it at the start, was that it had a magic jammer. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of quite remember how it actually demonstrated that it had a magic jammer. They're like, this isn't as powerful as I expected. And I don't exactly remember what it was. 
I think it but, was Benny Mario trying to take down one of the Megalodons, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's right. That's right. And, just, and like, I was... Like yeah, it didn't evaporate immediately like I was expecting. The last episode, we were so worried about these things, and Benny Mario's like, no, I'll just take on one by myself. And, I mean, they all do, basically. But magic jamming, I like the idea of. I like that idea in D&D that is so very magic heavy, and particularly at higher levels. Kind of having creatures that are almost inured against the magic because they live in this world that's so high, or they are so magical themselves. It's like, yeah, of course that's not going to touch me. But I'm wondering then, do you feel like that's removing the fun for the players? Like removing that fantasy of, I'm this amazing magic user who's able to cast fireballs at a whim. It's like, and yeah, they just kind of shrug it off because, oh yeah, I'm magic too. Is that, or do you think it's more balancing the, the well, the magic users are powerful, but this also gives the the physical people an opportunity to get in there. I think, so there is actually a full school of um, argument based around this when it comes to like sort of um, the gaming community writ large. Do you mm. buff an ability or do you nerf it? Mm -hmm. um, so for those of us that might not know what buffing and nerfing is, buffing is to make a, something more powerful and nerfing is to make it less powerful. Um, nerfing, of course, meaning those like those little nerf bullets. Um, so like they're little sponges and they start bouncing off it. Um, so there is a school of thought that basically you should try to buff wherever you can. However, it does come a point, especially in D and D, where if you start really trying to buff up your martial classes, suddenly you know even though the magic users have got a whole bunch of tricks it means that that reward center of their brain isn't being um um challenged triggered yeah or challenged so, yeah so and that's where the word challenge is really key mm -hmm. we don't want to make it so their attacks are useless we want to make it so they start really thinking about what attacks they're trying to make you know there's that whole thing about like oh the wizard comes in and casts fireball and suddenly throws a few dice and suddenly everyone's dead mm -hmm. um and the fighter gets to attack a few times great but um i think the best port of call for this is um an example of a creature called a gremshika um or gremishka from, um, Dan Richten. Sorry? Gramishka. I don't know. I'm just saying fun words now. Gramishka. Really I can't remember this Gramishka. creature. I'm going to look it up. Hold on. You keep talking. I'm going to look yeah. it up. It's um, it's from Van Richten's guide um, to Ravenloft. And basically, if a spell is cast within 30 feet of it, I believe, you roll a 1 through to 6, um, a, a d6 um, with each couple of numbers having a different effect. You roll, I believe, a six. This thing goes from this tiny little bat thing to a swarm of this tiny little bat thing. And I love it. Suddenly, yeah. Suddenly, your guys are like, okay, so I could use a spell to deal with this, 
And it's not like it's going to be stopped. It's not going to get swallowed. But something bad is going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's same with fire. You know, you set you whack a fireball in a room, but there's also so like all those really nice bottles of booze that you had sitting around, um, sitting around in this basement that you really wanted to sell off. Now it's going to make a big explosion. But it also means that you guys are going to be far worse off monetarily. Mm-hmm. Plus, have to deal with a burning building. Um, that's that's kind of standard for most games of D anD D with a burning building. Exactly, exactly. What's well, new, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I'm just yeah. looking at this stuff. I these this creature. I adore it. This is yeah. this is amazing. How did I miss so, this when I read Van Richten's Guide? Oh man, it is so much fun. So so much fun. Um, and yeah, what you need to do is start to um make it so. Again, again, having it be swallowed, having it be ineffective, that's going to piss your spellcasters off. Mm. But to make it affect the battlefield or the circumstance in some extra way to I guess buff up the consequences that is what's going to make it really really interesting I think a magic jammer might be the wrong way to go but I don't know a magicule flood would be interesting yeah well that's kind of what I generally do I generally have wild magic surges and have found a number of um, intense, intense wild magic tables, most notably the one from Sans Pants Radios, which is just dumb wild magic. And I absolutely adore this table. It has like a hundred different entries for every school of magic in D&D. But that idea of like, you cast any spell, something is going to happen. And what sort of stuff does it have on it? Uh, it has things like, you have to, anytime you get wet, your feet explode. And the only way to cure it is to do a really cool dive. Good Lord. That's so uh, that, or a transmutation one. It's like the closest elf um, elf settlement within a hundred miles. Everyone turns into a dwarf instead. <laughs> I might need to borrow that. that. I'm, I'm doing a Feywild um, adventure soon. And that'd be really cool. Oh yeah, it's it's great for the Feywild. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. Feywild is a great example of those sort of like upping the consequences of magic and stuff like that. And suddenly your martial classes are they're your surest bet. That that's what makes them powerful. Mm. And that's kind of what I want in a lot of lot of my games. Like it shouldn't be one one class is the definitive warrior or attacker in this encounter. I want it to be the entire teamwork. Like the fighter's going to be in there smashing away with their hammer or their sword, but then and you've got the bard like buffing them. But I also want the the mage to be back and like throwing spells at people, and everyone kind of doing their bit. Like you, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a group thing rather than fighter. Just hold them off until I can get banishment ready. So, well, yeah, exactly. Why don't I just run around and be and a then, kite? Yeah, exactly. Like, why am I here? 
And yeah. that's antithetical to what D&D should be, which is teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah, teamwork. Um, and I had something yeah, to say. I wanted to say about teamwork. You in... need the guy that... That was the question. Hmm? I was going to say, I had something yeah, to say about you... teamwork, and this is literally what it was. Yeah. <laughs> teamwork makes the dream work. Yeah. But, um, uh, and yeah, yeah that, 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 actually that... that, that... that hearing voices in their head. Yeah, sometimes so that helps. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. Um, but that that idea of teamwork is sort of what is happening with the megalodons in the episode. That each yeah. person, like each one of Rimuru's associates, each one of his team, gets a chance to bring one of them down. Yeah, in, in different ways. Way. Yeah, that's because Soe is apparently a badass, like super badass. Nerf Soe. Yeah, so he needs to be nerfed, seriously. Like, those spider web strings he's got is way too powerful. Really? Like, oh, that was... And it, I, this... I like that idea. I like having a combat encounter where everything's kind of balanced for each individual person. Like, there, there's always going to be a moment where that person can do a cool thing that they like. Like, when you've got... Yeah. It, it's the, the shoot at the monk idea that you've talked about before yeah absolutely yeah and I it's go ahead. i was going to say it's having an undead creature charge at them when you know very well that the cleric and the paladin have got weapons that can rip apart an undead creature yeah they're sitting there just rubbing their little hands together being like oh yeah, yeah. got some radiant damage here for you yeah and then you maybe have whoever's controlling them not be undead so it's like yeah you got the radiant damage you smash through my zombie ogre but me i can throw a fireball at you yeah so they're gonna have to to move out of the way and then you've got the rogue who suddenly got evasion and uncanny dodge and just moves out of the way of the fireball while that big hunking paladin in his armor gets toasted and it's like well now it's the rogue's turn to do something i think the term is um like basted no. Easted. <laughs> roasted. I would say roasted. Broiled, if they're inside broiled, there we are. <laughs> yeah. um, oh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, the base of I think might be something else. Um Color spray. Um <laughs> Yeah. But <laughs> just throw some color spray um, on them. Sure, why not? I guess it's also something else that um would have really, really helped this whole fight with Charybdis and is actually mm. a great example of what can happen when all of a sudden you're just like guys we've been at this for hours people aren't doing enough damage I I didn't realize that this thing had so much health um, or even not not even that I realize this thing has so much health um, and we're still going at it and it feels like it's going through all the different things how do you find cool things to do in amongst it that uh, that feel like they you're doing more than thirty percent of a creature's health without yeah just being like here's the kill yeah um, and so it, it's a hard one to to balance 
but having that that mob element to it it's like yeah you get to do all the cool fighting stuff and then the big creature that you're going to fight that's the that's the one that you you can throw your hardest attacks at it but that's not what's going to beat it yeah here's the boss yeah um i was actually also thinking about it a little bit um like also from the point of view of jrpgs mm. um which of course slime is based on um, no the of these yeah, no like they, they, they bury the lead quite a bit there <laughs> um, um but this concept of you know when they were doing like the side view stuff suddenly you know you had all these different parts of um you know this big boss that had their own stat blocks um that had their oh own yeah um yeah their own abilities and if you take that particular part out um then suddenly not only have you you know brought down the creature a little bit um you've also you know contributed something cool you've like locked up its arm and its leg and then hmm. as a dm you can also do something that jrpgs also do which is okay this thing just hit 75 percent health time to bring in the next attack yeah um here's the next ability that you need to deal with this thing is getting angry or more desperate um start bringing in the spells that maybe it was holding back a little bit um but now that this appendage is gone it's like okay i need to start fighting a little bit harder which unfortunately the charybdis fight really lacks yes well th that idea of when it hits a certain like when it gets down to 75 hp or 75% HP, suddenly it's able to reuse all of its weapons. Like suddenly it gets like extra damage on you because that that's yeah. cool. Powered by the Apocalypse actually has some very good um, systems for this because they just use moves. And just talking about superheroes and, and the like, uh, masks in particular, which uses Powered by the Apocalypse, that has that for villains because in that you don't take hit points you mark a condition in case you get angry or insecure or something like that so what happens is oh, villains have a have specific moves that they can do only when they mark a condition so when you're able to damage them that's when they suddenly go yeah but i'm your father ha 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 kind of thing and it's like really designed to mess you up again because now they now they are getting angry or they're getting scared or whatever it is so when you start to do damage to them, that's when they get more more abilities. Yeah. It's a shame that we don't get into the second season because there is a fight that is a great example of this. Um, I will not... Of course, no spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> but the idea of um, a boss that, like, you know, maybe depending on how the party goes up against it, like, it's a lot of work for a DM... And I probably wouldn't use this unless you are making a boss for like a one shot, i.e., like a boss that was going to go up and be a approached multiple times from multiple angles. Mm. Um, but creating a boss that does maybe have different abilities, depending on how the party goes up against them. Like if the yeah. party is fearful, maybe it's um, maybe it starts to get like really like one like um, big note itself, um, and so you know we'll sort of buff up a little bit, um, puff itself out a little bit, or if the player start insulting it, it's gonna like it's gotta have a very fragile ego. Um so it's going to um 
know, start reflecting the psychic damage back at whoever's trying to insult it. Yeah, I love that idea that like if it takes psychic damage or if you insult it with vicious mockery, it has a response of like throwing out all these little shards, like these barbs yeah. back at you. Like if you do psychic, I'll do physical. If you do physic, if you do mental, if you do physical, I'll do fire or mental or something back at you. It's that reflection um, coming back. That sounds really um, cool. Yeah, there's actually a concept of this again from JRPGs, but also from like action JRPGs. The concept of something called revenge values, where let's say, for example, you do a certain amount of a certain type of damage. Um, mm -hmm then it's going to counter um, with a particular attack. So you hit the um, creature, like, let's say 10 times. Um, suddenly, the stagger doesn't work anymore, um, and it um, hits back with its own attack, which is sort of what legendary actions are, but to have those maybe as readied actions that were, like activated by a certain criteria could be kind of interesting actually mm. Mm. that'd be good like when it reaches a certain point when you stand by this particular i don't know statue when you use certain yeah, statue, when you, you do two two fire spells yeah you do two fire spells to it in one turn yeah that's Man, interesting i, I want to make a boss around that that'd be interesting <laughs> yeah that'd be really fun That'd be more fun than Cryptus was, because um, Cryptus was yeah. such oh, a. Yeah. I, okay, this is why I feel that legs it. As well. Did you notice the little legs? I noticed the little legs. I was just like, really, oh, like the whole Cryptus yeah. plot was not great. It's just bland, and I feel it because there were no stakes in it at all. At least none that are addressed during the actual thing. Um, yeah. Like, there was one moment when Charybdis, like, uses this eye beam at Rimuru, and it, like, blasts a lot of the forest, and there's an explosion. I'm like, oh, we finally got something. There's going to be, like, wildfires. He's going to have to send the troops to go put them out. But that's just ignored. He's just like, oh, that was yeah. tricky. And then continues on. I'm like, yeah. well, no one's getting injured. You're just healing everyone as soon as they get injured. You're able to dodge everything. Like, it's not actually getting any closer to the to the town. I, um, why don't, yeah. and everyone's able to deal with the megalons like that. Like they just snap their fingers essentially, and those things are dead. So why am I actually worried about you fighting this thing? Yeah, um, yeah. The Caribbean fight is honestly probably one of my least favorite fight um, in all of um, in all of that time I got reincarnated as a slime. Not because it's a bad fight, but this is dull. Yeah. I like there were a lot of sign of what it is to make just a damage sponge enemy. Yeah. With no stakes. That's that's accurate. Like it's it's a great example of what not to do in your combat, which is just like have something that has nothing going on, no extra elements, no um like major stakes. It does like feel that, like that combat like where they they the, the Game Master's, like, created this big, epic, Sin-style battle. I'm saying Sin is in Final Fantasy X, um, yep. where it's going to attack your village. It's Godzilla. It's the Tarrasque of all the... It's yep. the kaiju coming to get you. Yep. But they haven't realized that the players have just been building up so many allies that this thing isn't even a threat. 
and they just keep adding hit points yeah. to it, hit points to it, hit points to it. So it's no, we're gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be a cool battle, I promise. Because there's the thing where Soe and um, shoot, um, my girl and and Ranga, they oh, all attack uh, it, and, and then yeah, they attack it, and like it does its sin scale thing, and all the scales attack them, and they're like kind of knocked back a little bit, and then they're like, well. I guess you should go. No, I should go. No, I'm going to stay here and I'll die honorably. It's like, well, no, you won't because like you barely got scratched before. You can easily run away whenever you want. There's no real threat to you. Exactly. And isn't that like a boring encounter? Yeah, like, it's sure it was super like, boring. Yeah. Yeah. What I was hoping for uh, is when um, Demon Lucarian showed up at the end, like demon Lord out of yeah. nowhere sort of thing. And to basically to collect phobia. And I was just like, like is this, is this going to be an that. issue? Yeah. And then he's all like, cool. Like I love, I love carrying. And they just suddenly get a peace treaty. He's like, yeah, all right, cool, whatever. But what I saw is he just fucking murdered phobia, like right in front of them. Yeah. Like he crushes his head into the dirt and they were like, oh, that guy's still bleeding. I'm like, is he just bleeding or is he dead? Like, I feel like he's dead. Alive. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, right. Because oh, that would have, again, raised the stakes because they've had this very anticlimactic battle. And then Carrie just comes along and goes, yeah, that guy annoyed me, so I'm just going to crush his head in front of you and walk away. And you yeah. can't touch me now because we've got right. a peace treaty. Exactly. Um, and, and that'd be so much fun. Like, that would be stakes. Yeah. Um, but honestly, the only stakes that are added, like, and even then it's lip service towards it, where essentially, I can't remember what happens later, but it's like such a nothing thing. I'll just tell you when. Anyway. Um, sure. Where Gazel Duago is, um, Gazel Duago is sort of like, hey, um, so we've given all our knights and all that sort of stuff. Um, you use basically an atomic bomb. <laughs> um, is that something we have to be worried about? Like what's, what's going on there? Um, and yeah. Um, have you got, and then once they explain it's Malim, they're just like, okay, you've got Malim. That, is that under control? Like, is is that under control? under control? I do love Malene's line of just like, now let me show you what restraint looks like. Yeah. It basically does like a fucking terror flare. Um, and That was awesome. Yeah. It's like, yes, this is me being restrained. Malene. Mm. The magic jam as well. Yeah. Through the magic jam. I just, Malim, I love you. Find some trousers. Like, yeah. just, just get, once. Get the Drake Hammer girl. Just, just. <laughs> yeah. But it just looks weird. But yeah, no, it, it really does. I've, I've never been able to internally justify Malim's design. No. Um, and I, I have made some stretches in my life. Um, for anyone that has watched Chainsaw Man, I'm a hemino-apologist. Not fully, but mm, I, I can see where the writer has come from with that. And, <laughs> oof. Um, so, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've we've, we've complained about Moline. We have complained about Moline. But I'm one of those people that I'm able to see where the artists are coming from. Not with Moline. I, I don't understand. No. It... Um... Yeah. <laughs> we could complain more. Um, but we won't. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to cover from from this episode as we're starting to to run short on time? Let's see. I did want to talk about Charybdis in terms of a raid boss, but I think we very much covered that in terms of encounters mm-hmm. and like maybe using parts. Um, and then we talked about meta stuff when it came to did. um oh mate with the manga. Um, well. Was there anything that you want to talk about? There is one thing that I want to touch on briefly. There's some things that I think we'll discuss in future episodes, and that's mainly um, the idea of summons, which I suspect, given the the end of this episode where he meets the children who are summons, that's going to be dealt with in in more depth, and the um, the tech level of the capital as well, which I quite enjoyed, but um, I feel like that's something for a more in-depth talk when we see more of it. What I wanted, this is like a very brief little thing that happens in the episode where he basically just goes, thanks to Ranga's running skills, I was able to get there in three days. And I was like, yes, that's how you skip over travel. That's how you just go, you get to the place. Yeah. Sometimes, like I appreciate hex crawls and in the right campaign, they're great. If you are running something where the group has to survive, um, let's say that they've, or even if you're not running a survival campaign, but suddenly you find your um, your party in, in, like, on a deserted island, and you need to convey you are struggling to survive, that's when you get the heck stuff out. Yeah. But if it's like, if you're going to a town. And the stuff is set up for the town. Sure, maybe you have a couple of random encounters on the way if you really want to, but don't do a hex crawl. No. There's a game that I regularly run for people, and it's very much about going through like a, a dungeon. But I set started off by giving them the mission, essentially. Their employer's like, hey, you've got to go to this place and do these things. And he says it's three days away. It's like, you've got your camels, go travel for three days, you'll get there. And I'm expecting you back in six days because it takes you three days to get there. You do the thing three days back. Then you get paid. Getting there is never a problem. Getting Getting back is never a problem. It's not about that. It's about giving them that sense of urgency once they get to the place. Like they got to keep moving. They got to keep moving through that thing because they got to get back within those three days, the next three days. And where's the story coming from? You know, if you're playing Ryutama, the story is about travel. So, of course, mm. you're going to be doing a lot of travel. You want to be like, yeah, that takes three days. Let's play through the three days. Mm. But if you're doing a story about D&D, when the best thing is about interacting with roleplay and, and like, the or story is very focused. If the story is the yeah. dungeon, yeah, you don't want to be... I'm walking through the woods and then I found a, a tree that looked interesting and then I talked to the tree and now it's been an hour and a half and I'm not at the dungeon where the story is. Exactly. It's why it's best to do a recap at the start of every single session yeah. inside of it because otherwise 
you're going to do the next thing that, that stops a story in its tracks. Flashbacks or this character <sighs> telling another character about what happened to a third character. And then the third character has to go off and then tell an, another fourth character about what happened with those previous two characters. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh my god! It's um that has been one of the most dragon friends. You were going to say dragon friends? Dragon Lance, Dragon Lance. Oh, okay, good. That was the problem I had with the most recent book, and I'm glad I can get that out there. Are you saying Dragons of Deceit is not the best book ever? Is it Dragons of Deceit? So what next topic would you like to start to talk about, hey? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Let's wrap the episode up there before we... Uh, we... We'll, we'll put the review say. up. First book is yeah. great. First book is, abs- like, in terms of, like, the first part of that book is a great piece of tragic fantasy fiction. The rest of the book, mm-hmm. you can see that Tracy Hickman and um, Weiss, that's his... That's his Margaret name, Weiss. Um, Margaret Weiss. Margaret Weiss. Um, and Margaret yeah. Weiss were um, definitely strapped for time. I'm just going to bleep all of that, so when I get them on later, it'll be fine. <laughs> but I do love them. They, they, they define my childhood. Yeah. They're, they're iconic. I haven't read Dragons of the Seat yet. I'm looking to get Dragons of Fate pretty soon. I'm going to wait for it all to be out. That's the moment favorite way yeah, of doing cool. reading these books i made that mistake back in the day with the meeting sextet um you <laughs> have yeah. to deal with Dude, the hard covers i tried i tried <laughs> all right well <laughs> let us wrap it up there that is it for this week uh join us next week when we talk about episode 21 shizu sun students and something else um i've forgotten what the other is so conquering the labyrinth that sounds fun uh but there is one more thing that we need to do before we finish the episode i nearly forgot it but i did remember it eventually we need to pick a character from the episode that we just watched and talk about how the themes concept and characters can be used indeed <laughs> i'm i'm starting to lose it i'm starting to lose it caleb i'm, I'm nearly there a character that we just watched from the episode and how they either got a crit hit or a crit fail in that episode who, who, who you pick? Um, I've already given Shuna and that one. Yeah. Um, but I think I am going to give Geld, actually. Um, the, oh, wow. Okay. Um, for just tanking a Megalodon with bare. Their hand Megalodon holding was pretty uh, cool. Good ass grapple. I just think, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yep, it was pretty yeah, impressive. Yeah, I'm going to give um, a similar one. It's also about a megalodon. It's not in that same episode, though. It is in a different one. Um, it's actually in the next episode, uh, and I've forgotten the character's name. What's the old ogre's name? No, 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 no. I mean, in, in like in the in the Yuki, yeah, in uh, in the Yuki Kagura Soka. Oh yes, uh, in the second episode. Okay, Hakura. Um, when he fucking fillets a megalodon uh, with his mad-ass sashimi skills and serves it up yep. for the feast. Like, that's a nat 20 if I ever saw one. If you just throw a giant fish yeah, at someone fun. and they just <laughs> slice one, tw- one, two, it's it's done. You can eat it. I mean, I think he doubled up on that because I believe that he did it to the megalodon in the first episode. 
episode and reduced he, it down to its scales. He did, but I feel that that's probably not as good eating. Like, that's just a lot of damage when you actually do it and, like, and look, you just shear this flesh off the bone and it's laid out right there for everyone to pick from. That's that's the nat 20. Whereas this is just like, I did 5,000 damage. I am going to ask this because I always love to hear this. What do you use for the cooking skill? What is this nat 20 on? Intelligence. Oh, wait. For this one, it would have been sleight of hand. For this would have been sleight of hand because he's got to use the knife and just like let it slide. It has to guide it. If he was actually cooking it, but it's sashimi, so he doesn't need to cook it. Um, That's true. Yeah, so it's going to be sleight of hand on this one. And with that, we have, I think, officially finished this episode of the podcast um as i say come back next week so we can talk about other episodes and you can leave reviews wherever podcasts are found which hopefully is going to be apple podcasts um a couple of other places probably too uh what is it called spotify they've got reviews as well uh they've got places that you can find you know review places i'm i'm really losing it thankfully caleb just came back from from the disconnect so hopefully he can say things (laughs) wonderful yay he just went off to review things and it's all good um where can they find you caleb now that you're back where can they find you online um apparently now that i've climbed out of the void uh you can find me at what's a caleb on instagram wonderful you can also find the podcast on uh instagram which is at dndntvpod uh you can send us an email as well which we'd love for the season wrap-up which is going to be in a couple of weeks uh with questions about the show etc 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 that's dndntvpod at gmail.com uh this episode is brought to you by masters of alchemy the premier game mastering service in melbourne you can find their web page at masters dot masters of alchemy or one word au where you can book us for games or at fortress on fortress emporium on sundays in melbourne cbd uh where you'll see all the stuff that we've talked about here in action that's in space action not in action all our secrets all our secrets uh do 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 what else have i left out oh there's something i meant to say and i'll remember it another time thank you so much for listening you did. You did. It was, it was, I just heard a little Sorry, Wilhelm no. scream as you fell, but it's fine. And, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. Be kind to yourselves. May all your hits be crits. And we'll see you next time you get reincarnated as a slime. See you next time. Back to my void. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. Always was, always will be. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging.